We've been looking for two weeks at forming a heart that invites God's touch, putting warmth back into your soul. And the text we've been working with is Isaiah 66, really the first five verses, but just to save time, the the key thought that we've been trying to unpack is in that second verse. All these things God speaks through the prophet. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be. So God is, God is speaking to the people about they think the temple is a beautiful place and they have a lovely place to worship, and God is saying, you, you think this is special. I made the world. I made everything in it. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Um, all these things my hand has made. That's where we pick it up. All these things came to be declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so that verse has really formed the central thought for this series of messages. There's a, there's a frame of mind. There's a, a disposition. There's, there's just a, a steady sort of outlook that God looks for in men and women who want to know him deeply and powerfully. And while God sees everything, he, he has particular regard. He, he has an affinity. He sets his affection and attention in a special way to one person in a crowd. This is the one to whom I will look. Surprisingly, it's not a perfect person. We all sin. This morning we read it. We all stumble in many ways in the book of James. So it's not a perfect person that God is looking for. But a, a contrite person is the word that Isaiah uses. Uh, a repentant, a penitent person. A person who... who um, instantly feels the pain of grieving God more than he feels the delight of getting his or her own way. I guess that's what I would that's how I would summarize it. One who fears grieving God more than he or she fears anything else. So what we did last week is we looked and I think those are online or or will be soon, but two passages that describe traits that that look like a trembling heart, that use the terminology that are similar but not the same to the trembling heart that our text describes in Isaiah 66 too. And the two passages we looked at were Acts 24, 24 and 25. It describes Felix. He's got this conversation going with Paul and he knows a lot about the faith, Felix does. The text says so. And And as Paul talks to him, Felix trembles. Paul talks to him about judgment and the holiness of God. And and Felix trembles. And he sends Paul away. I'll call you back when I want to talk more about this. He just can't cope with that anymore. But that's not the trembling heart God desires. We also looked at James 2.19. And it describes demons who hold all these accurate beliefs about God and tremble. 
And so James' obvious point is that demons are believers. If by believers you mean they believe, they believe what you believe. Do you know that? Demons believe what you believe. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe God is creator of all things. They believe in, in the power of the cross. They believe in the coming judgment. In fact, that's what they're afraid of. Remember, there's that herd of pigs that they're going to be sent into, and Jesus comes, and they say, what have, you, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? They know who he is. Have you come to torment us before the time? They know the time's coming. They're all going to be judged. They know all of that. They are believers in that sense. They agree with it. It makes their hearts tremble. They aren't saved. They aren't godly. So it's not that. It's not what Felix shows, and it's not what the demons show. So tonight I want to look at, okay, so where are we going, Pastor Don? Like, show me what this heart is, and then how do we get it? That's what I want to talk about tonight. I wish we had a whole bunch of time. One of my favorite uh, accounts in the Bible is the story of young King Josiah found in 2 Kings 22. And I'm not going to work my way through that whole chapter. I'll give you like the fastest overview of that chapter that, that, that I can do. Josiah is talked about in 2 Kings 22. I'm going to read one verse out of the whole chapter. Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. So also I have heard you, declares the Lord. Here's what happens in Second Kings 22. Uh, Josiah comes to the throne when he's eight years old. You know any eight-year-olds in the church? My grandson, Braden, is nine. Okay? He's a year younger than that when he becomes king of Judah. He's eight. And he comes to the throne at a time of deep spiritual decline, mostly because of his father, Ammon, who did nothing but evil. The Bible says, did nothing but evil in the sight of the Lord his whole life. As a result of that, the temple had fallen into disuse in terms of the worship of the Lord. Josiah, as he gets a little bit older, he's in the middle of refurbishing the temple. It's just fallen into ruin. Nobody cared. When you look at verses 4, 5, and 6, Josiah says, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord and which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. I thought that's a good text that Neil should use tonight when he comes and makes his presentation. Let it be given to the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Let them give it to the workmen that are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, the carpenters, to the builders, to the masons. Let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. It's a biblical thing. Don't, don't let the place fall to ruins. Fix it. You live in nice houses. Make sure God's house is nice. And so there's, there's, there's what they're doing. Josiah's in charge. So quite a bit of money is needed just to get this place decent again. 
As they're cleaning through all the dust and the rubble, Hilkiah, the high priest, he finds a copy of the book of the law of God. It's in verse 8. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. This is amazing. Here are the people rebuilding the temple. It's a disgrace, the condition that they've let it come into. So as they're going through, imagine moving, moving right underneath you here. There's a basement, and we about two times a year have to clean things out. There's dead youth pastors down there. There's, <laughs> there's just stuff all over the place. And so you go down there, and imagine they're, they're looking and moving, and they're picking up all sorts of garbage. They're hauling it all out of the place. And somebody, just imagine, somebody goes, hey, look at this. It's a book. In the beginning, God. Hmm. Who thought that, eh? It's the temple. As they're going through the rubbish, somebody finds a copy of the law of God. Apparently, nobody had noticed it missing. Nobody cared. Out of sight, out of mind. It is ever so, isn't it? Mind you, they were still going to the temple. They still kept the motions of their religious routine going. But God's word had, had long been uh, left out, lost, ignored. There was, so there's no uh, authoritative base around which they submitted their own wills, their own ambitions, their own desires. They just came and who knows why they did it. They just kept coming. Cousin Emma was there and Uncle Albert and the friends from the store and they met and it was just nice to be together. But the law of God is gone. Shaphan is the official secretary. And he brings the book to young King Josiah and he begins to read it to him. Think about this. Don't just let it zip past real fast. Maybe, maybe, for the first time in his life, King Josiah hears the book God wrote read to him out loud. It's a tough passage to read. Eight, nine and ten, Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Beautifully, verse 13 gives us young Josiah's response. Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Because our fathers, and he's talking about his dad. That's not easy to do. Our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Josiah might not be brilliant. He's young. But as he hears the book read, he goes, well, we, we haven't been doing that. We, 
We didn't do that. We didn't do that either. The opening text tells us it wasn't just an intellectual thing. Young King Josiah tears his clothes and wept. Oh, God. Then Josiah sends for Huldah, the prophetess, to find out if God has anything to say about Judah's neglect of God's ways for all these years. That's in 14. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakim, Akbor, Shaphan, Azaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shulam, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. By the way, all of those names are to show that Huldah, there's this recognition of her as a, as a genuine prophetess. This isn't just somebody who walked in off the street and felt like, oh, God told me to tell you guys. So there's this, oh, that, that prophet. That's the reason for all those words there. Huldah's response is found in verses 15 to 20. In a nutshell, I'll just tell you, this prophetess says, for the people there's going to come great judgment from the hand of God. But because young King Josiah's heart was so tender when he heard the book of the law read, because of one man, this is the one to whom I look, because of one man and his tender response when he heard the law of God read, God, the prophetess says God is not going to send judgment on Judah during Josiah's lifetime. Now just think about that. Young King Josiah's tender heart before God for years stayed the hand of God's judgment against a whole nation. One person who took God seriously can affect a whole church and a whole nation. Oh, don't you want to be that kind of person? Now the point, I went through that chapter, the point is quite direct. Out of all the stubbornness, the sin, the sexual immorality, the idolatry, and the corruption among the people of Judah, we see one person standing out in God's eyes. Just as Isaiah recorded, this is the one to whom I will look. This was... One person singled out for special blessing, special attention, and it had to do with this person's tender heart to the word of God. In the midst of total corruption, we don't know where he got it, but Josiah had a trembling heart to God's word. I want you to think about two people now just for a minute. Two significant personalities. Think of Pharaoh. The Pharaoh. Pharaoh wasn't his name, but we just call him Pharaoh. It's an office. God wanted to get a message across to Pharaoh. And the story is told in Exodus 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Those five chapters. You know how it works. Over and over again, Moses goes. They cook up a deal. Pharaoh agrees. 
and then changes his mind, and God sends a plague. And then Pharaoh says, okay, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. All right, and then changes his mind, another plague. And this happens repeatedly, over and over again. You wonder how somebody can be so stubborn. And at the end, well, we know how Pharaoh ends with his whole army drowned because at the end, he is 10 times more hardened against the will of God than he was at the beginning. Think of the, the manifestations of God's power that Pharaoh saw. One, maybe you could say, is a coincidence. But not 10 times, and not when Moses says, here's what's coming next. Like, you just have to be stupid in addition to ungodly. And his heart doesn't get softer. Seeing proof, his heart doesn't get softer. His will gets more stubborn, and he gets more godless, and he gets more numb spiritually. Josiah. Here's the thing. What is it that made Josiah's heart tremble? And what is it that protected a whole nation for his entire lifetime? What is it? He never saw any kind of miracle, not an ounce. No angel visited him. A hand didn't come down and write on the wall. Someone else comes and reads a passage from the Bible to him. That's all he gets. Someone comes, says, I found this book. And Shaphan starts to read it to him. He hears the Bible read to him out loud. He can't stand it. Drops to his knees, weeping, tearing his clothes. Cries his eyes out. Remember, all of this he does responding to no more than what all of us did in church this morning when the scripture is put up on the screen and that's all we did and we read it aloud together. That's all Josiah gets. Just that. Think about that for a minute. The difference isn't in the manifestation of divine presence. The difference is in the heart. Pharaoh sees more manifestation of supernatural power than Josiah. And Pharaoh isn't changed by any of it. Josiah sees nothing but having a passage read to him from the Bible out loud... And his heart is, is broken by it. No, the difference isn't in the manifestation. You see, you see, we would all like to think we would be responsive if he were to come into this place tonight and, 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 and the place just lit up with the glory of God, filled up with smoke, and some divine being stood here in light and spoke with a voice that thundered. We'd like to think we would all fall on our faces and be different people. a hoax. 
we wouldn't. We might be stunned and shocked and amazed for a little while. We'd like to think if there was something, an audible voice, an angelic visit, something obvious, something dramatic, we'd, 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 boy, would we be moved. Boy, would we respond. Boy, would we get serious. Imagine people in the service this morning. Just imagine, as we're reading from the book of James, wouldn't we think it odd if all of a sudden, I don't, I'm not doing this just to be dramatic, but, but all of a sudden, wouldn't it be something if all over the sanctuary all of a sudden we saw people reading scripture and all of a sudden, oh, oh God. All over the room, crying, wailing. We go, Wait a minute, we, we, got, we got courses to sing yet, you know. So, the difference is in the heart responding. Now, how do we get there? If I don't finish this tonight, I'll finish it next week. How do we get there? Is there a process for heart tenderizing, heart restoration? One, Expose your heart to the means through which the Holy Spirit will work. Only the Holy Spirit can take away the heart of stone. This is what all the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel especially, longed for, looked forward to. The day when the Spirit of God would come, take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, a heart that would be tender. Only the Holy Spirit can soften your heart. Almost anyone can soften your emotions. That's not the same thing as a heart tender toward God. We need to keep that distinction clear. Any person is capable of being moved. The right book, the right song, a sad story, a movie. You ever been in a theater and some tear-jerking movie and seen people pull out their hankies? This is not the Holy Spirit. This is human emotion. Happens all the time. but a soft heart to the things of God. That doesn't just happen. That's a work of the Spirit. It comes through being God's house. It comes through prayer in secret. It comes through much exposure to the Word. It comes through waiting on God with your conscience aligned and tender to the slightest divine nudge. Please note the lesson here. I don't do all those things because I feel inclined to do them. I do all those things so I will feel inclined to do them. And do you know how many Christians don't get that? I don't feel like going to church. Look at the difference between this morning and tonight. And they're, they're barbecuing. And they're in their pools. And, and these, aren't, these aren't bad people. But the thing is, they, they, they didn't, for whatever reason, they didn't feel inclined to come. Not realizing that the inclination comes from coming. That's where the inclination comes from. That's how it happens. Two, take more seriously the warnings and judgments of God's word 
Centuries ago, Richard Sibes, great Puritan, wrote these words. Faith constantly sets the day of judgment before the believer's eyes. This causes him to live in the fear of the Lord. Your New Testament just reinforces that, if you think it's just an old, archaic concept. Let me read some verses to you. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul speaks, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appearing of his kingdom. This is how Paul starts his exhortation to pastors. Think about God's judgment. Think about his coming. Think about standing before him. That's, that's how you do what you do. And he goes on with all sorts of instructions. Don't you dare just say the things that you think the people are going to want to hear. Don't just go to be popular. I'm going to ask you, Don, did, here was the message. Did you give this or did you give something else? And you're accountable to me. But the motive behind it all is you, you think about judgment. I think, we're, we're, I think somehow we are conditioned that if you, if you think about judgment, no, I'm a grace, I'm a grace teacher. I'm, I, I, I go for a grace ministry. And I do too. As long as you mean biblical grace. But if there's people heading for judgment and I don't tell them about it, please don't come up to me and tell me you think that's gracious. That would be cruel, wouldn't it? Do you want a doctor who's so gracious you go and there's the lump that you feel and he says, oh, I don't want to worry you. Don't think about it. Is that, a, is, that a, is that a loving doctor? Is it a kind doctor? No. Grace isn't avoiding the subject of judgment. Grace is pointing out the subject of judgment and saying, flee to Christ. There's mercy, there's pardon. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, we sang this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. Why does Paul, crossing the then known world under horrible condition, what takes him, what propels him to all sorts of people who haven't yet heard about Jesus? I know the fear of the Lord. We're working on a timeline here. There is only one Savior. People are lost in sin. We persuade people because I know about the fear of the Lord. I'm intimate with it. 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, look at the world around you. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Do you see what he's doing? He's trying to tell them to be holy and godly, and he reminds them that everything, everything around them is going to be dissolved, remade, new heaven, new earth when Jesus comes again. And he obviously thinks those things go together. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? So here's another apostle, Peter. This isn't just a Paul thing. He, he writes about his motivation toward holiness and godliness, and he makes it sound like that's just impossible unless you're thinking about the coming of Jesus and the end of all things. Take heed against sinning against conscience. Here's how you 
develop that kind of heart. All sin is serious, but sins against conscience do more than just stain the record before God. Sins against conscience darken the understanding and deaden true godly affections. What I mean is, a smaller sin committed against conscience is more damaging than a grosser sin committed in ignorance. Think about that statement. A sin against conscience numbs a trembling heart before the Lord. And and that's why Paul especially makes it one of his main goals not to foul up the work of conscience in his actions. He says in Acts 24, 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Please note those words. I always take pains. And if I were underlining, I'd underline take pains. Here's what Paul's saying. If you're not just going to be a people pleaser and go along with what everyone around you is doing, if you're going to listen to your conscience and follow Jesus when he speaks in your conscience, it's, it's a painful thing because it will always require sacrifice. It will require the sacrifice of the applause of people. It might cost you friendships. You might feel like you're missing out on things that other people are doing. Make no mistake about it. It's costly to do what's right with God. I take pains Paul says, make up your mind that it's worth anything to please God. I'm going to jump. If you've got notes, I'm jumping through to two other passages of of Scripture. I don't know where that is on your outline, but that's what I'm doing. Two passages of Scripture. 1 Timothy 4.2. Is that on your sheet? Do you see where I am? Okay, good. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Seared. That word seared is the word cauteriazo. Can you think of an English word we get from that? Cauterize. Exactly. That's where we get that. Think about that. It's the process where nerve endings are sort of desensitized. So Paul talks about these people and they, they go against their conscience and they've become caught. They, what it means is they can't feel anything toward God anymore. Even if they do the right things, they can't bring their heart into those things. The other text is Ephesians four eighteen and 19, where it says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. So we're looking at a trembling heart. Hardness of heart. They have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So the two phrases, they've become callous and then greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Why why do they keep going in this direction? Well, they can't be made to feel repentance. They can't be made to feel the weight of grieving God. They can't be made to care, so the only option is, I will just keep filling myself up with the same stuff. It hasn't done a thing for me. I'm dead. But I can't bring my heart to feel God anymore. 
there. That's what happens with sins against conscience. That's what happens with sins against conscience. Keep your heart tender, point four, by avoiding sexual sin. I don't think you could prove from the scriptures that some sins are more damning than others. But I think you could prove that some sins are more damaging than others. I think of David. Do you remember when David sinned, he numbered all the people, and he wasn't supposed to? And God comes to him and says, it's a famous passage where God says, you can pick how I will judge you. Do you want judgment from the Lord, or do you want me to turn you over into the hands of men? And David very wisely says, God, you're just. I'll take judgment from you. Please don't turn me into the hands of evil people. But the point is, instantly, instantly, David is troubled by this, and he wants to make it right. That's one of the things that made David, or gave David, the name of being a man after God's own heart. There was this, he, he was tender toward that kind of sin. And then Bathsheba. And, and what you notice instantly is it's a different story. In fact, David never, you can feel the weight of his sin, he writes about it in, inwardly, but he never actually confesses and brings it out into the light on his own ever. Remember the story how Nathan comes? If Nathan hadn't come, would David ever have confessed that sin? We'll never know. We'll never know. There's a particular power. I'm talking about how to keep a tender heart toward the Lord. And, and the point now is avoid sexual sin. There's a particular power and a particular shame. And both those factors matter. There's a power to pull a person into darkness, to lead him or her into further paths of guilt. And the other reason plays into it. Sexual sins, perhaps more than any other, carry a certain kind of shame, especially when they are committed in the church or among Christian people, that, that keep us from walking in the light and bringing them into the open. They are usually the most secret sins. And because of that, they tend to metastasize inwardly. Avoid sexual sin. Avoid sexual impurity. Five, keep your heart tender by fellowship with the body of Christ, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How can I avoid being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? We should all make a mental note here. Even if, I know it's warm in here, and even if you feel like you're dozing off, get this point. The writer says, I can't keep a tender heart before God alone. I'm assuming the opposite of a heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I'm assuming the opposite of that is a heart that's tender toward the Lord. I think that just makes sense. So what he says is, you, you can't keep your heart tender by yourself. You can't keep it tender by yourself. I'm designed to need community. And the less I feel the need, the more I am already deceived by sinful thinking about the gathered church and the vital need for fellowship. 
When you think about it, the reason I need your help is obvious. According to the writer of Hebrews, sin makes inroads into my life through deceitfulness. And the thing about deceitfulness is, the more you are, the less you know you are. That's how deceit works. We need each other. I just want to say this. It's very common today. A lot of believers think they can trust themselves to stay holy. So what if I don't get out to church as often as I used to? I read my Bible more. I still pray. I memorize Bible verses. And all of those things are great as long as they're not used as a backup for disobedience to God about going to church regularly. Like, you can't build up credit with memorizing Bible verses, so God will ignore the fact that you're not in fellowship, accountable, regular fellowship with the body of Christ. You can't memorize enough verses to make up for that. It's a heart thing. It's a heart thing. You only have one job to do, and that is to keep your heart tender before the Lord. Sometimes it's easy to miss what's most important. Remember the lady? It's a true story. It's not. She bought a $100,000 talking minor bird. This bird could speak four languages. This bird could sing opera. Marvelous, marvelous bird. She got the bird home in a huge cage that she had specially built for him and noticed after a time the bird was getting increasingly miserable. She wasn't sure what to do. So she went out and she bought a piano, big piano, put it in the bird cage and the bird could peck notes and make music on the piano all by himself in the cage. But the bird continued to seem lifeless and depressed. She bought a big mirror that the bird could stand in front of and look at. And he was interested in that for a while. And then again, she's got thinner, weaker. And she couldn't figure out what was going on. She, she, she bought a little, a little uh, car on a track and the bird could sit on the car and it would go around the track, around and around and around. One day she went in and the bird was there. I'm sorry to tell you, and has passed away. She got the bird. She took it back to the store where she bought it. She said, I don't understand. I, all the things I did, and he still died. And the manager of the store said, well, he's a talking bird, very intelligent. Didn't he say anything to you? And she said, well, yes, he did at the very end, but it seemed too late. And the pet store owner said, well, what did he say? She said, well, he said, doesn't that store where you buy all this stuff sell any birdseed? I'm sorry. I just... <laughs> Some stuff... Some stuff you have to get right, okay? Some stuff you have to get right. And here's, 
God's calling on your life and mine, God's calling is, is a simple one. And here's the calling. What God wants is your heart. He wants all of it. Not just in the sense of, you know, we have this, this kind of thing where, oh, I asked Jesus into my heart. There. But that's, that's not giving him your heart. God wants my heart at the place where what I fear more than anything else on planet Earth is I don't want to grieve him. And whenever I sin in any way, sin will never be fatal as long as sin is committed from a tender heart that can't stand to live with it. Do you get what I'm saying? Keep your heart trembling before the word. Be like Josiah, not like Pharaoh. Everyone said, 